Welcome to the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. Thank you for listening. You can catch us on 99.1 FM in the Portland Metro on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. Or tune in at your convenience wherever you find your podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Music. This is a special segment because it marks the 75th episode of the Early Link Podcast. And I want to thank all of our listeners here in Oregon, across the country, and internationally for tuning in. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Marvin Lynn, who most recently served as the Dean at Portland State University's Graduate School of Education, has served as Dean and Professor at universities across the country, and started his career as an elementary and middle school teacher. He has also conducted research that explores the work and lives of black male teachers and the impact of teacher beliefs on black students. He is an internationally recognized expert on race and education, serves on the board for the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education, and is an elected member and vice chair of the Tiger Tualatin School Board. He is also an editor for the recently updated Handbook of Critical Race Theory in Education. Marvin, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I know that currently you are on sabbatical, and I just thought we could start there. Uh, what does that look like today? And I know that you're spending your time focused on your scholarly work. So give us an update. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it, it couldn't have come at a better time because just as I was going on to sabbatical, the firestorm around critical race theory began nationally, right? Right. And I remember as I was talking about the transition out of the dean role, I was starting to get some communication from the media about CRT and its existence in the schools. And I was saying, no, 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 it's not really happening in schools and not paying much attention. I mean, it, it was like clockwork. As soon as I became professor on sabbatical, I started to get all of this communication from all these major uh, news entities, Fox News, the BBC, and <laughs> Christian Science Monitor. Hey, what's going on? Well, you know, people were asking me questions about why there's so much fear around critical race theory. So I've spent a lot of time talking to the media and explaining what critical race theory is, what it is not, why it is an important conversation to be had. And I've also been talking about and sharing my concerns about the legislation that we see happening across the country in places like Idaho and Oklahoma and Tennessee, for example, Texas, where essentially they have banned critical race theory from being taught in the schools and in some cases in higher education. And so I've talked about why I think that's anti-democratic and why we need to think differently about having critical conversations about race. And so that I've spent a large chunk of my time doing that. The other part of what I've been focused on is working with the provost and working with other people in the institution on building an institute for race and education at Portland State, okay. which would fill a void, I think, that currently exists around really having conversations about the substance of race from a scholarly standpoint. What does the research say about anti-racist teaching, for example? and how we are to do that. What resources can we draw on to begin to do that at multiple levels in higher education, but also in the K-12 context? So to provide us a space where there can be support for thinking about that and working through that. And then also a supportive space for scholars who really are truly interested in 
uh, critical analyses of race in their research, but maybe trying to figure out how to do that. And so to create an, an opportunity for scholars to come together and to have conversations about what that really looks like and how to do that in a way that really honors the work and the experiences of racially marginalized people. So those are two of my major things. I imagine those are both taking a lot of your time. I'd like to talk about both of those a little bit more. Could you unpack a little bit more about this concept of creating an anti-racist lens in the education world and what that might look like. You talked about higher education in K-12, but also in the early learning space, I think that's important. And that idea of anti-racist early learning or anti-racist teaching in early childhood has been increasingly important and elevated recently. So what does some of that work look like? Well, I think as a scholar, as a teacher, as a leader, you know, I think about it first as trying to understand where we are, right? And, you know, I work in the area of critical race theory. We take a particular sort of approach to understanding these United States of America and its founding and its history in terms of its connection to slavery and the removal and annihilation of Native peoples, the conquest of folks in the Southwest, but the exclusion of Asian Pacific Islanders. So there's a whole history here. And Oregon, in many ways, encapsulates a lot of that, right? Right. If you look at Oregon's history around the exclusion of Black people and the internment of Japanese and so on and so on. And the way that the Kalapuya and other Native Indigenous peoples in this state were treated as this state was coming into formation, that we have to sort of situate ourselves historically within that context and understand that that is what we come out of. And that has shaped and influenced everything that has happened and continues to happen, particularly in educational institutions. And yes, early childhood is an important component of that. And there's too little discussion about that. And so when I say K to 12, I don't mean to exclude early childhood. As a dean, we oversaw the Helen Gordon Child Development Center. And there was a lot of conversation about what learning in that context looks like and how we draw on these principles to think about the learning of one, two, three, and four-year-olds and so on. So it would start with this sort of deep investment and look at history from the standpoint of, of critical race theory, quite honestly. But then it would also take a look at our policies and our practices, right? And in particular, we need to better understand how what we do in terms of policy and practice, when I say practice, when I'm talking about classroom instruction, but also other types of practices, right, that may not involve teaching, how those lead to certain outcomes like dropout for minoritized populations or feelings of dissatisfaction and disengagement of minoritized populations and employees. So we have to then look very seriously at the data as it relates to our current structures. And then we have to come up with plans for how to systematically address those issues. So that's what an anti-racist agenda for me is. It's that we are delving deeply into the history looking at the data and the outcomes, particularly as it impacts minoritized communities, and coming up with plans to actually alleviate some of those challenges that we experience and being very persistent about that. I think what we see happening in higher education and and in other arenas is a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of emotionalism, a lot of ad hominem attacks, a lot of sort of undermining of these kinds of things, gaslighting of scholars of color talk a lot of times about when they raise an issue or a concern within the context of universities, for example, or early childhood programs, that 
they are pathologized and talked about as being crazy or irrational, right? right so right. we never actually get to the problem because we're so busy attacking the people who are trying to raise their concerns. Right. Anti-racism says, let's stop all of that and let's really look honestly at the problem. And if people need opportunities to sit and cry because they feel guilty or they feel ashamed or they feel attacked, they can deal with that. But then that doesn't become the central concern. Right. The central concern is resolving the issue that we're concerned about in the first place, which is these outcomes, right? That people are leaving, people are dispossessed, people don't have access to power, and people are um, dropping out. And can you talk on what, what are some of the data points or data that you're referring to in terms of whether that be the experience of teachers of color in the school system or achievement gap or achievement numbers, those kinds of things? What are some of the data points that you can highlight? You know, I could get real specific in terms of looking at PSU or looking at any any specific institution, but I think broadly speaking, what we are seeing is Black and Indigenous and Latinx students in higher education, but also K-12 and preschool. We are seeing the rates of achievement and, and attainment are just different from what you see for white and certain Asian students. Now, I say certain Asian students because if you compare, let's say, Pacific Islander students specifically, they would fit, I think, more closely with what's happening with Black and Brown Indigenous students, whereas Korean and Japanese and Chinese students might not. So we have to be much more specific about Asian Americans, uh, Pacific Island students, because the data varies within group. But we see very differential rates in terms of achievement. And we also see in preschool, and there's a law that was passed recently in Oregon that says, you know, you cannot suspend <laughs> and expel preschool right. kids, right? right? And the fact that that's even happening is a little ridiculous, right? But we see these outcomes, higher suspension rates, higher expulsion rates for students of color across the board than we see for white students and, and, some, and certain Asian students, for example. These are national issues, but we also see experiences in, in Oregon um, in different ways. We're seeing lower retention rates for teachers of color across the board, preschool teachers all the way up to university level teachers, right? Right. There's a sense in which they just feel disaffected. They feel not, not supported. They feel like they're not treated with respect. And so they leave. So those are just two examples. I think we could look across these systems and, and find many, many more examples of this. Talk about for a moment, you mentioned the importance of early childhood and, and that it's a key component of this. And yet the early childhood programs and services, we don't really have like a comprehensive, cohesive early childhood system yet, per se, in the same way that K-12 functions. But we know that K-12, broadly speaking, has not necessarily been successful at closing achievement gaps or addressing these issues that you're raising. From our perspective, working on early childhood issues and policy, Early childhood has a key, will play a key role in doing that over time. And that's something that we're working on developing. So talk about that connection and how you see that. Early childhood is an important site of study, I think, because it's the first place our children, you know, interact with teachers, right? And my sons, uh, I have three boys, and all of them had experience with early childhood in one way or another. I'll tell you, my first boy, who's now 19, he's a junior at the University of Oregon, we had some pretty negative experiences in Maryland, where we were at the time with early childhood, because we just felt like he was not being treated like the other kids. He was kind of excluded. Um, in one place, we felt like there was even some abuse going on. So we just, we moved him around. Right. And ultimately, we ended up homeschooling him because we couldn't find 
a daycare or child development center that really met our needs and that we felt like honored who he was as a, as an individual. And we are, you know, fairly privileged people, right? Yeah. I, you know, I have a doctorate and was a professor and so on. So I, I can imagine what happens for people who don't have those kinds of resources and that kind of education. And my wife had the ability to be able to stay home with him and homeschool him. That's a level of economic privilege that we enjoyed. So early childhood education is sort of the first place where kids can interact with teachers. And unfortunately, if issues of culture and race aren't attended to in that context, I think it's a bad way for a kid to start. Yeah. It can lead to, I think, problems later on. I saw that with my younger siblings who got into these kind of bad head start placements in Chicago and and got to kindergarten and it just went downhill from there. So early childhood can give kids a strong foundation. If it gives them a weak foundation, then I think it can set them up for failure later on. Right. So we've got to get that right. I do think that we've got to be thinking about the connection between early childhood and kindergarten, for example, in terms of what kids are expected to learn and be able to do in both contexts. Sometimes what you see is the early childhood community has a sort of its own idea about what counts as learning and how kids learn and what kids should learn. And then uh, the folks in the K-12 system have a whole different conception. And so I, I do think we need to come together to figure out how we work together, how we best prepare kids to be successful across the board, PK to eight. Talk a bit more about the need for diversifying the workforce, both in K-12, early childhood. I think in some ways the, the issue is similar, but if you could talk a little bit more about that topic, why it's necessary and what the potential impact is for students of color. Well, my research shows, and I think there's a growing literature that essentially argues that for students of color, teachers of color are essential. Yeah. There's data that we have that's reliable, verifiable data that, that shows students of color, particularly African-American and Latinx students, perform better when they have had one or more teachers of color. Mm -hmm. That teachers of color are less likely to suspend or expel these students from school they are more likely to learn in these classrooms and to get better grades over time, which leads to greater academic success and achievement. The research I've seen hasn't really looked specifically at early childhood, but I think if you look at what's happening in elementary, right, the data that I'm talking about does look at early elementary years. I think we can deduce that this is also important for early childhood as well that if we really want to see sustained academic and social emotional growth for all students, that we have to ensure that there's greater diversity among the teaching staff. That is an imperative I think we have to be committed to. The research I've looked at also suggests that teachers of color are also good for white students, mm -hmm. particularly in terms of helping them to form more positive racial attitudes early on, that having had a teacher and or an authority of color who, you know, makes a good impression on them that they develop a relationship with early on is, is a very, very significant thing in terms of helping people develop more openness to other folks, to being more culturally competent. And so it, it, it's good all around. I think what 
The problem we're having, and this is what I said before, is that while we are actively recruiting teachers of color, we're not keeping them. Right. They are leaving at much higher rates than white teachers. And again, they talk about racial climate. And we see the same thing in higher education. And they also talk a lot about that relationship to the leader, the principal, or uh, whoever the director is in charge. That sense of a lack of support or, or culturally incompetent or downright racist uh, yeah. folks who are in charge of schools, who are running schools, or it could be the mom and pop shop child care center, or it could be the big, big school in one of our districts. And that, that these folks simply don't share their values. They don't care about kids. They're thinking too much about the numbers and, and, and doing things and what would be considered draconian ways. And so teachers of color don't stay. And so while we talk about the recruitment and retention of teachers of color and improving that, we have to also be focused on leaders of color. I am working on another group in the state called the Educator Advancement Council. And Dr. Matir, who is leading that effort right now, is also very concerned about that connection, right? If we're going to talk about promoting and, and advancing teacher diversity. We have to also be talking about advancing leadership diversity and also making sure that as leaders, as principals in particular, get trained, that they are trained to be culturally competent, that they have the skills that they need to be able to support a diverse staff. This is not just for K-12 educators. This is also true for directors of early childhood centers and so on. There are some opportunities. The Student Success Act has funds and some orientation toward diversifying the workforce. Preschool for All, the, the Multnomah County initiative that I think you were involved in the, in the planning with is oriented that way. I know those things are still, in a lot of ways, just getting started, but are you seeing opportunities? Do you think we're set up to make some progress? I think so. I, the nice thing about Oregon, as opposed to some other places we could be right now uh, in the country, and I talked about those states where critical race theory is banned and, and, you know, those very conservative political climates where it's just hard to even have these conversations, let alone put policy into place that to pushes this forward. So we're very fortunate in Oregon that not only can we have the conversation about race and racism, there is actually policy in multiple places and spaces uh, moving forward many different systems sure. that is equity focused. I think, as you indicate, uh, has the goal and the intention of reducing barriers uh, to teaching and learning for kids of color and diversifying the workplace. I think the challenge with policy in Oregon, and I've said this in lots of places, is the accountability factor. Like, how do we ensure that the, the policy, which is a vision, it's a goal, right, is actually enacted at every level? And how do we hold the systems accountable for doing what the policy says they ought to do? How do we ensure that we create the kinds of climates and cultures within the workplaces that are supportive of these policies that we are enacting? And so I think that sometimes we, we write a policy that sounds wonderful, and then we sort of turn the other way, and we forget that that community who has to now enact that needs a lot of support needs and help maybe to do direction it right. in terms of how to in fact do that. They need to develop a set of metrics to be able to determine when they are successful and when they're not. And they probably need some funding to be able to put 
some committees together or bring in an outside evaluator and do other types of things to help them actually make this happen. And I think that's where the disconnect comes uh, for us in Oregon is we have a lot of policies, but there isn't a lot of accountability and there's a lot of sort of clear expectations around how we get this done and how do we ensure that this happens on the ground. Here's an example. HB 2001 was recently passed, I believe, and it essentially says to school districts, if there's going to be some kind of reduction in force of teacher of the teacher workforce, that you have to consider issues of diversity. And we know that because we're actively recruiting teachers of color all the time, a lot of times teachers of color are the last ones hired. And under the current system, last one hired, first one fired, and we have to reduce the teaching force. Right. Well, this law says you have to consider student demographics and how that compares to teacher demographics. And if you have teachers in that building that are helping you meet those goals around those demographic goals, then they can't be the first person on your list. You have to also consider things like experience, you know, and, and those things. So it's a complex, more complex sort of way to think about teacher retention that we hope puts some sort of safety guards around new teachers of color. But the question has come up because I'm a school board member and school board members are talking about this is how do you make sure that that is happening on the ground, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't have the ability to sort of look at the staffing lists of every school and to see who's going and who's staying. And so, you know, without having to do that, how do you really hold schools accountable for ensuring that they are in fact following that law? And what happens when they don't? And those are the kinds of questions that I think get raised over and over again in the enactment of really great equity focused educational policy in Oregon. You're on the board of the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. So you have this sort of national vantage point about the direction of the profession, of the teaching profession in the U.S. Can you talk about what that looks like? So we have been engaged in a strategic planning effort for the last couple of years. As most of them are deans or college presidents, some of us are, you know, we were deans and in other roles, but are still thinking broadly about where's teacher education going? And I think we have concerns about the fact that we haven't been able to close the gap, these achievement gaps, as you say, or, or that we haven't been able to make good on what lawyer lads and billings would call this education debt, to put another way. So that when you say achievement gap, I think people talk about that as being focused on the kid and what the kid doesn't have. The right. education debt recognizes that, that, you know, we're in a system, unfortunately, has not provided these students with what they needed to be successful. Right? Correct. So teacher education uh, hasn't solved the problem. In fact, may be contributing to the problem in many, many ways. And I think it's hard to admit that in some ways. I've myself personally have been involved in teacher education in one way or another for two decades as an instructor, as a professor, as a dean, as an associate dean. It's always been teacher ed. Mm -hmm. And so to have to reckon with the possibility that the work that I've done over the last 20 years in teacher ed may not have contributed to solving this longstanding historical gap that we see is hard. And I think as an organization, I think AACTE has grappled with that issue and that question. Yeah. And so what we've been doing is trying to figure out what are new, more innovative ways to address and resolve these issues. And so we started talking about the idea of teacher education programs partnering with maybe ethnic studies or other types of enterprises that have a deeper connection 
to issues of equity and race and social justice. Because the other thing that we see with teacher education programs across the country is, is the lack of faculty diversity and the, the lack of emphasis on race in particular. Right. And where it does exist is kind of isolated, right? So students take the one course uh, on diversity, but there isn't that integration that we see throughout. As we recognize some of these perennial challenges to teacher preparation, we're starting to try to think outside the box about how we might engage in a collaborative kind of interdisciplinary approach to thinking about how to resolve some of these longstanding issues you know, around racial equity. Because I think we are willing to admit that we can't do it by ourselves, that we're going to have to uh, engage with some partners. I think not just ethnic studies, but maybe community partners. There are a number of community-based organizations, for example, in Portland and, and other parts of Oregon that have been doing lots and lots of important work in communities of color for a long time. Right. Maybe there are opportunities to really connect with those organizations to find out what are you doing? What can you bring to the conversation to help us really rethink, to re-envision what teacher education could look like? So I, I think AACTE is trying to be visionary around thinking about teacher education as it can contribute to the resolving of what I think is a crisis with you know the, the achievement of minoritized communities in this country. I know you've talked about critical race theory having been in the news, the amount of time that you've spent having conversation with people and news outlets about it. And there appears to be um, a lot of misinformation about it. If you could talk a little bit about what you've seen or what you think is going on in this national context around critical race theory, CRT, and uh, what you'd like people to know. That's a great question. And that's exactly the question I've been trying to answer, essentially, in in the talks I've been giving with folks in the media. So this is political. And whenever there is a changing of the guard in the White House, (laughs) we see these forces come into play, draw attention away from what I think is an autocratic agenda and draw attention to a whole set of conversations that were beginning to happen in response to the heinous murder of George Floyd. Right. So that happened in in the spring of 2020. And suddenly this country is thrown into a tailspin. We're in the middle of a pandemic. So we're all at home and we have time to sort of think and reflect on what's really going on. And this country really began to reflect on race in ways that I just had never seen. I've been doing this work since the mid-90s, right? Yeah. And I've never yeah. seen the kinds of conversations we were having on CNN and other places around race that were recognizing that, wow, we have a systemic issue here. Yeah, What happened to George Floyd is, is an illustration of a real problem that we have in this country and that we need to rethink policing. We need to rethink the legal system that supports police officers who kill Black men for no reason, right? That we need to really undermine systems that make it possible for that to happen and for people not to be held accountable. And so those conversations were happening. It was an amazing thing to be engaged in and and to watch. And so what immediately happened is political operatives on the right got together. Christopher Rufo, you may have heard of, is sort of the ringleader in that regard. And there, there are others who are, I think, are working along with him, but he was a very visible presence. 
as someone who started to write in his conservative publication outlets about what was going on across the country in terms of these conversations around race. He called attention specifically to a couple of professional development sessions that he had known about somewhere in Seattle. They were asking people to think about their race and how their race was implicated in certain historical events like slavery and other things, right? And he pointed to, the, in his mind, the ridiculousness of, of all of this stuff. Right. Um, he also uh, wrote articles where he attacked K-12 schools. My school district was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gave it some kind of ridiculous title that led people to believe that that kids were actually being called to arms and being forced to become anti-racist. And so what he did was he created kind of a sense of public outrage, mainly among white folks in this country, around what he thought uh, was going on that was leading us down this path that essentially was leading people away from the support of a more autocratic, uh, I would say openly racist and xenophobic uh, president toward a vision that was more pluralistic to have a white man and a black woman, uh, black and Asian woman be in the leadership in the White House, right? To have a black woman be vice president for the first time in this country's history. It really was a monumental thing to have happened. And so what that shift represented was a shift toward an America that was more pluralistic, more egalitarian, mm-hmm. more welcoming of all voices and perspectives. It's not lost on, on us that Kamala Harris's parents were immigrants, right? Right. And, and we remember the conversation around immigration prior to, right, under yeah. the Trump administration, immigrants were regarded as enemies, right? Right. Um, as people to be kept away. And suddenly now we have a vice president who has immigrant roots in some sense. So it really signaled a complete possible political and social transformation. And I think that this conversation about critical race theory is really just a way to induce enough fear in people to get them to go back to embracing autocracy. Why do you think there's so much fear for people around talking about race and racism? You know, unfortunately, teacher education has some responsibility to bear here. It goes back to what I was talking about earlier. But there hasn't really been sufficient conversation about race in this country. I would argue, and I've said this in a school board meeting, we are racially illiterate. We don't really know how to talk about race. We don't have the language to talk about it. We don't know our history. Yeah. A lot of the things that I've learned as an adult about slavery in the United States, I mean, it's horrible, right? But I think there are places and spaces where you either still don't learn about it at all, or you learn that that it wasn't so bad. Yeah. And as long as that's the case, it, it's going to be hard for us to talk to each other and to be able to face the the truth of our history because we just haven't been taught. And I think you know I, I hold the school systems uh, directly responsible for that, and that, that's something that I certainly want to see uh, shifted and changed. You're an editor for the Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education, and that has recently been updated. Can you just talk a little bit about what some of those updates are reflecting in the current version? So, yeah, I mean, we we were able to write an introduction that addresses January 6th and talks about and compares that to the moment we were in. I think there was a Time magazine article that compared January 6th to a moment in 1861, around that same time, 
when Lincoln was getting ready to come into office and was basically saying to this country, we have a decision to make. And I am not going to support slavery. And there were a number of people in this country, of course, who wanted that to continue. And he made it clear that that would need to end. And so what you saw was this hue and cry and eventually a civil war that tore the country apart, but ultimately brought it together around principles of democratic uh, freedom for, for all. And so I think that the January 6th debacle was that moment where what we now are finding out is that it, it was their intention to overturn the government and to put us on that path of autocracy. And so we are able to sort of situate this handbook within that historical moment. Right. And then to talk about why critical race theory is needed now more than ever, right? We need to be having critical conversations about race now more than ever. Critical conversations about race that are situated within our true history. Yeah. We need to face that history. But we also need to be thinking about kind of innovations uh, in education. And so there's a number of people who are writing about, for example, my colleague Subini uh, Anamai at Stanford University is really interested in what she calls discrit, which looks at the intersection between race and disability yeah. and sometimes gender. And she, she compares the experiences of black male special ed students in schools to the experiences of black males who are accosted and sometimes killed by police. Right. And what you'll find is a number of those individuals have also had experiences with special education, right? And so okay. there's this pipeline that we talk about, school to prison pipeline, and unfortunately, in some cases, school to death pipeline yeah. um, that many um, African-American males, particularly those who have maybe cognitive or other kinds of issues that were not in, resolved, right, or addressed in a full way, end up in these challenging situations. So I think her work helps us to understand how we get to a place in a society where you have people who are dispossessed, who don't have sufficient work, who are then being abused by the system. And sometimes, again, lives are snuffed out that there are, I think, specific things that schools can do to ensure that this school-to-prison pipeline, the school-to-death pipeline doesn't continue. Yeah. But you have to look at the problem in, in its fullness first. Yeah. And that's really, you've, you've kind of started to answer my last question for you, which is really kind of looking at the future. And I'd love to get your thoughts on what are your hopes for the future of education in this country and for our kids in this country? I think educators and educational leaders are going to have to be courageous and focused and persistent in their commitment to equity and racial equity in particular. I think we're going to have to stand strong against some pretty wicked forces that I think have continued to try to scare us into hiding, into not having this discussion. There are a few memes out there, you know, the internet is, is rife with all of these images, right? And one of the images that I persistently see is the grandfather who himself was standing with George Wallace saying, there shall be no segregation at the school board meeting saying there shall be no conversations about race. And what he's really trying to do is hide his own history from his grandchildren. He doesn't want his grandchildren to know that he was that guy on the front line, right? right. Fighting for segregation. And so uh, there's an effort to keep our kids ignorant. 
And I think what we're going to have to do as educators and educational leaders is understand that that's what's going on and not be afraid of the very loud, very well-organized machine that's out there that's constantly confronting us with images of fear and disinformation as a way to control our thinking, as a way to get us to act based on fear. And so I think if as an educational community, we can do that and realize that if we're truly going to have an education system for all that is going to be impactful and and effective for all children, for all students, for all communities, where everybody feels welcome, everybody feels like they have a place, that you can't shut down conversations about race or gender or human sexuality, right? right? All these conversations have to be able to be had because otherwise you foreclose on the possibility for certain people to participate in an active way. Yeah. This idea that I can learn about history and it should only glorify white men in order to be considered history right. is false. Right. And it also denies who I am and what I represent. If you're going to teach me in an impactful or effective way, that you have to teach a true and honest history of slavery, because otherwise you misrepresent who I am yeah. and what I bring to the table. Now, of course, you can go beyond slavery to talk about Africa, and I think that's important too. And I'm not saying it has to stop and end or begin with slavery, but that's an important component. So I think that education is going to have to be willing to face those truths. I think educators are going to have to learn to be fearless in the face of all of this. I hope that, and I will continue to work to advocate for greater support for educators, particularly in terms of salaries. It's pretty abysmal right now. And, And I think we need to work on compensation. We need to make sure that teachers are well-paid. I think teachers need time off. They need professional development. They need to be, I think that professional development needs to be happening in concert with what it is they're doing. It shouldn't be these sort of experiences that they have that are kind of wholesale that aren't directly related to what people are actually trying to do in the classroom. Right, right. Um, So there are a number of things I think we need to do, but I would argue that forthrightness, that persistence, that working against the odds is important. And for me, my own personal story, I think is an example of hey, I can work in one arena, right, as a dean and do certain things, and then I can sort of step into other arenas and do other types of things. Um, But that the fight continues, right? It's it's not about (laughs) your title or your role. It's about where can I be the most impactful, right? And how can I continue to push for racial equity wherever I am and in whatever ways I do? And how does that align with, with my particular professional and personal goals And to be thinking about that as a community, I think, is important. Wonderful. Marvin, it's been great to have you on the podcast today. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Children's Institute. We're at work transforming early learning and healthy development for young children and their families in Oregon. Tune in on 99.1 FM on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. or stream these segments wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org. Pay us a visit, sign up for our newsletter, or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening!